Well, good morning. Oh, there we go. There we go. We keep vacillating this morning. I can't tell if y'all are really awake or you're really asleep. So that was, that was a good response. I like that. All right. Well, um, I, I've been thinking uh, back over the last several weeks about what we would talk about next. Uh, I kind of have a process. Um, it's, it's not as easy to come up as, with sermons as, as one might think it is. Like, there are so many different things that we could talk about and so many different passages that we go to. If, if I don't have some kind of an idea of where I'm going, um, I don't know if you read a couple weeks ago, I wrote a, a blog about staring out the window. If I don't have an idea of where I'm going, there's a lot of staring out the window. Uh, because there's just so many different ways that we could go, and my adult onset ADD goes nuts, and I can't really figure out a lane that I need to go in. So it works much easier if I pick a lane and we stay in that lane for a while. This, this is a different situation in that God has um, been speaking to me from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for quite a while now. And, and um, what really struck me about these books is how they're all about building, right? Like the, and Ezra and Nehemiah, as we'll talk about in Nehemiah here in a couple minutes, the whole thrust of the books is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And, and I, as I think about those books, I think about how easy it is for us to get lost in the details, like the, the precision of what's going on, to get lost in the fact that, oh, they built walls, they're protecting Israel, oh, they built a temple, a place for worship. And we get lost in all the details and we lose the real point and the principle behind it. And I think that happens with us as a church too. Like I, I think in the concept, I, I, metaphor is big for me, and I think of the metaphor of building a lot when it comes to the local church and us as First Baptist Church in particular. What are we trying to build here? And I know that there was a time in which building a church meant literally building a church. We're going to go build a church. I've, I've heard it before. You know, we need to build a church on this street corner. Why? Because there's not a church there. Not exactly what I would call a great reason to build a church, but not the worst reason either. But what are we really building here? What, what does it mean when we talk about our need to build and be the church in Seymour, Indiana, Indiana and beyond? What does that mean? Is it really just about restoring this building? Like, I, I won't lie to you. There are things about the building of First Baptist Church that I would love to change. Um, I'm going I'm to draw her in. She didn't, I didn't ask for permission. But Montica Chambers once described the building of First Baptist Church as being somewhere between uh, man cave and nursing home. Like, the, the decor of the church. She's not wrong. Like, I, I say that because I totally agree with that. If, you look, if you're in here, there's a lot of blue, a lot of black, kind of got some man cave feel going on. You go out into the halls, and it's institutional tan everywhere, which that, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it doesn't have the most homey or warm feel you've ever seen in your life. And, and so I, there are things that I would love to change. About, I apologize, Montica, because I didn't ask you for that first, but... It's the risk of talking to me ever in your life. But um, th there's, there's this, whole, this whole building here, and I would love to change things. It's no, there's not, I'll, I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. I've been in conversation with several people. In my heart, one day I would love to out here in this big empty splotch of grass to build a, a city center where, where we actually have a center that is not just for our families, but where we seek to reach the community through community services and through available things that are out there. That's coming. Like, that, that, that day is coming. It is so heavy on my heart. And I believe God would have us do things to reach the communi community. So I think about the building things, but I don't think that's the most important thing. 
Having a building is much less important than what you do with it. And I think we see that in the book of Nehemiah. So let's pray and go to the Lord and ask that he would open our eyes to see the truth he has for us today and then jump on into Nehemiah. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. God, I thank you that that, that the truth that we have sung this morning is the truth, that you do love us. God, and I know that it's true based on your word that you don't need us. Lord, your word tells us that, that were we not to do what you've called us to do, that even the rocks would cry out to give testimony to who you are and what you've done. But God, I don't want the rocks to cry out. I don't want the bricks to cry out. I want us to cry out. I want us to be the people of God, doing the work of God, manifesting the presence of God in our community and in our world. So God, as I pray, I pray that as we look at the book of Nehemiah today and over the next several weeks, that you would help us to understand what it means to build the walls that make manifest your presence. Lord, may we not seek to contain you, but may we, may we seek to shine your light out in the world. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going we're gonna to read the whole chapter. Nehemiah 1 verse 1 and following says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel... I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. So we've got this, this beginning of this story. It's actually kind of a continuation of a story. If you go back and, and look at the book of Ezra on, when you have some time, you, you see a parallel between Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra had gone back as a priest with a group of people to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, and, and had, had come into some difficulty. And so now we see the second return, the second return of exiles back to, the, the, to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city. And we, we see a lot of interesting things in, in Nehemiah as, as we, we start this book. We, we, 
we see this, this man who is in this position of power that, that when he hears the, the reality of what's going on in the world, he is moved to move, to do something. And that's where it starts, is, is we have to recognize reality. We have to recognize reality. I think that we struggle with that sometimes. We struggle to see where, that's actually my first point, we struggle to see where we actually are in the world. We struggle to see the condition of the world. We struggle to see where we fit into the midst of it. We, we see it as just details. And we might see it, but, but does it move us? Does it do anything in us? But we see here in the book of Nehemiah that he recognizes reality. His brother comes to him. It's believed that it's probably his actual biological brother. And his brother comes to him and he asks him. He's just asking him for the news. This isn't, this isn't asking for a detailed report. For whatever reason, his brother has come. It's believed he probably has come back to make a report, to seek funding, to seek supplies, to look for help. So as he's there, his brother's kicking it with him and he says, hey, what's going on? How, how is it? How is it? And he's given really what we would consider bad news. It says, the walls are down and the gates are burned. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us. I, I mean, we, we see the tragedy of walls being down, but, but you and I living in America, the concept of walled and gated cities is kind of lost on us. It, it, at a minimum for us, a gated city is just trying to, to protect our property from, you know, undesirables, and it's really more a status symbol. But when you, when you look overseas even now, or you were to go there and, and study the ancient Near East, walls were an important fixture for, for civic reasons. There are two reasons there's a problem in what's going on, because the walls served a variety of functions for society. And, and there were two, two specific reasons that Nehemiah is bothered here by the walls being burnt and being down. One is civic, and the other is religious. One is civic, and the other is religious. The obvious point of the walls of a city in that time, or even a building in, in our current time, would be to protect people. Right? For us, we don't have to worry about creating walls so we can, in general, we don't really need walls to keep people in and out. We can, we can discern what's going on around us, and we generally are a civilized society, and things are generally safe. I realize that there are recent examples that would work against that, but ain't none of us hurrying to build a wall around Seymour, Indiana. Not, we're not at threat of an in, a force coming in to try to hurt us as a people, to try to take us captive, whereas in this context, they would have been. We do, however, build houses, right? We build churches, we build schools, we build buildings. Well, why don't we just do that out in the open air? Well, it's, it's more than just people we need to protect ourselves from, right? Like, it's, I, I haven't been outside since, you know, 8 o'clock this morning, but I'm guessing it's warmer now than it was when I came in. You know, we, we create buildings to protect ourselves from the heat. Right? We, we understood it, it's still a little warm for me in here right now, but last week it was even warmer because our air conditioner wasn't working appropriately. But we protect ourselves from the heat in the summer, and it protects us from the, the snow and the cold in the winter, and it protects us from the rain. We build walls, we build cities, we do these things uh, in, to an, some extent to create protection. And in the context of Nehemiah, the walls in particular of the city were to keep the bad people out, those that would threaten the people out, and those that were part of the people in. So there was this us-them dynamic. It was to separate the good us from the bad them that might hurt us. I used to have, I used to have a Cocker Spaniel. 
Um, her name was Bridget, and Bridget was the little foofiest dog you've ever seen in your life. Um, Bridget would decide she wanted to go for a walk with us, so she would stand at the door, and she had these little pudgy legs, and she would shake her tail, and she'd want to go for a walk with us. So we're like, sweet, we'll walk down to the bridge, which is only, you know, half a mile down the road, and come back. But we would get out, and we would start walking the dog, and Bridget would go exactly three houses, and then she would sit down. And it was as if she was saying, okay, I'm done walking now, you can carry me. And she would just sit there. We couldn't make her walk. Bridget, was, Bridget wasn't feeling, if, if there was water outside of, of our house, if it was raining or snowing, we would have to go shovel the snow, not just because Bridget was snow, but because Bridget would touch the snow and be like, ha, I don't think so. I'll just pee on the carpet, thank you very much. Bridget was not feeling getting her little feetsies wet. That was not her thing. Bridget wasn't feeling being out in the cold. Bridget wasn't one of those dogs that was going to defend their property. You know, the, the, the movie Up where Doug is like, squirrel, and they want to chase it. Evie wasn't chasing the squirrels. One time we had a, a rabid squirrel that wouldn't get off our property, and so I threw Bridget at the squirrel, and Bridget immediately came back to us. She's like, I'm not touching that thing. It's dirty. <clears throat> Bridget wasn't going to protect us. So Bridget was basically just a little black blob of nothing. So I remember one day I put Bridget outside in our backyard. We had this big fenced-in backyard, and so I put Bridget out so I could go do some work up front in the front yard. And I go up front, and I'm, I'm doing some work, and I come around the side of the house, and there is a coyote outside of our fence losing its mind. And it's losing its mind because it can't get through the fence. And my dog, in all of its wisdom, walked over as close to the fence as it could and laid there, as if to say, if I'm going to die, let's get it over with. Let's just go ahead and get it over with. But there also was a sense where she understood that that fence was going to do its job. She's like, you know what, homie? I can't get out. You can't get in. Look at these lamb chops, right? <laughs> she wasn't going anywhere. The fence was doing its job. It was protecting Bridget. It was doing what it was designed to do, protecting that which was inside from that which was outside. That's the purpose of a wall. And the Israelites, to protect them from enemies, the Israelites had enemies, Remember, the Israelites are in exile, so what would happen in olden days is that when a, when a country would take over another country, it wasn't just they would decimate it and wait for them to rebuild it. No, they would go in, and they would decimate the country, and then they would take the people, and they would move them somewhere else. It's the old this divide and conquer analogy. It's, it's not just divide and conquer, but it's divide and keep conquered. If they moved the people far enough out in different places, then they couldn't rally together and rebel. So they would move them in different places. But not only would they take people from here and move them there, they would take people from another society and move them to live in the society that they just emptied. So here's where you run into the problem and where Israel is really looking at a problem. How are you going to feel if you've been moved to a place? Now, mind you, Israel's been exiled for 100 years, which means there's been other people living on their land for a long time. And now suddenly they decide that God's word has come to them and it's time for them to move back and take their land. Now, as you, the outsider, who have lived in this land for some period of time, are sitting there and seeing this people group coming back saying, um, you know, we left this for a while, but we really want it back. How are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to a people group building up walls to defend themselves when the people are coming back to take land that was given to you? They were not popular. So they needed these walls for protection. So there's a civic reality, but there's also the religious reality, which I think is more important. And this is why the people of Israel are coming back to the place. The city of Jerusalem was more than just a city. It was more than just some random place for people. The city of Jerusalem 
was meant to be the place chosen by God to represent God's presence on the earth. It was meant to be the place, the city on the hill that we we hear talked about throughout Scripture. That was meant to be the place where God, though he was omnipresent and could be everywhere, would manifest his physical presence for humanity on the earth. And it wasn't like it is now. You know, we struggle with that because now there's a church on every corner. You, You don't like how it is here? That's fine. There's like... 85 gabillion churches in Seymour. Just, we just pick another one. There, there's no need for us to, to feel any kind of dedication to, to one place anymore because we can just go anywhere. And that's, that's, I'm, that's not a slam. It just is what it is. There are all kinds, and I mean that in the most complimentary of ways. There are a lot of good churches in Seymour, Indiana, doing the work of God, making manifest the presence of God. We see them as allies, not as enemies. Just FYI. A lot of great churches with great people in the community. A lot of great places to go and experience the presence of God with the people of God. In, in this day, there was one. There was Jerusalem and nothing else. That was the place appointed by God to be the place where he would make his presence known to the world. So the destruction of the walls of the city of God and the destruction of the temple of God was not only a danger to the people, that, the civic issue, but it was a shame to the people. It was a disgrace to the people. We see that here when he asks about the remnant. said, those who survived the exile are back in the province. They are in great trouble and disgrace. So he recognizes the reality of that. But here's something we don't want to miss in this. That even in the darkest of times, God always preserves a remnant of faithful followers to do his work in the world. We see that in verse 2. The question is, how is the remnant doing. The the faithful people of God that are in that place doing his work to bring about and make known his presence there. How are they doing? I, I would say that throughout scripture that's a concept that continues on that God always preserves a remnant. No matter how bad it might seem to us at any given time. No matter how dark the world might seem to us. No matter how dark our own situations might be. God is always preserving his remnant to make his presence known in the world. But part of the job of the remnant is to recognize the reality of our need for God's intervention and his involvement with us. Notice that Nehemiah's first course of action when he finds out about what's going on in the dire straits of the people is not to run off to fix it, but to drop to his knees before the Lord to pray for intervention. It's Nehemiah's first concern is not what can I do, which we'll talk about in weeks to come, was rather robust. Nehemiah could do a lot. He was the cupbearer of the king. He was in an influential place and position. He, he could and does do a lot, but his first course of action is to go to the Lord. The reality for Nehemiah was that if God did not move in the midst of the situation, then nothing of, of worth was going to happen. And I... As I read these verses, as I've read them several times over the last couple of weeks, the question that comes to my mind is this. Is that our first response? Really. Is our first response when we see the reality of what's going on in the world to cry out to the Lord? Do we cry out to the Lord at any point? Are we really, when we see the reality of what our world is facing and what's going on, are we burdened by the state of the world in which we live? Do we see the crumbling walls of God's church in the world? And I'm not just talking about physical walls. We can go find that. 
In the midst of all of the churches that there are out in the world, more churches are closing than are opening right now. And we can drive around and I can show you churches that were turned into bars. I can show you churches that were turned into condominiums. I can show you churches that were just left to rot and fall apart. I can show you church after church where the walls are literally crumbling down. Why are those walls crumbling down? Because at some point in time, the people of that church, the people of God that were entrusted with that place, failed to understand what the truth of their mission was. They failed to reach the world. They failed to shine their light in the world. And as a result, their church is now empty. That's one of my greatest fears. Do we pray passionately to God to move on our behalf? And most importantly, when we pray, do we believe that it will make a difference? Really? When we pray to God, do we actually pray with expectation and anticipation that God will move on our behalf? Do we believe that he will hear us and work for, the, his, for our good and his glory? The truth is this, and here's the reality, that all of humanity is at risk when God's presence is not made known in their midst. That there is clearly work to be done today in our world. If we are to be part of God's faithful remnant, we are called to do it. You and I are called to rebuild the place of God's presence in this world. We are called to be his church, not to build some building that sits on some corner, but to be a people, to shine a light in our community. And the success of our mission is not ultimately in our hands and our abilities, but in God's hands. If God doesn't move and do a great thing in our world, then anything we do is temporary. We need to recognize the reality of our situation. Second, we need to recognize God's faithfulness. It says that he's been praying for a while. I think that's interesting that it says he heard these things, he sat down and wept, and for some days mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then it says, then I said. Just a quick side note. What did he do for all those days before he said? What was he doing in all those days of silence? I don't have an answer for that, but the indication would seem to be in the passage that he's been praying for a hot minute before he even says anything. But finally, he comes to the Lord, and the first thing that Nehemiah does in the midst of what's going on is he recognizes God's faithfulness. He starts off by remembering who God is. Note he says in verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. Now, this, this name for God may not mean anything to us. Kind of overlap it. That, that just, God is God, right? We get really offended. Some of us get really offended when we hear someone say the G word, you know, oh my God. We're like, oh, you're using the name of the Lord in vain. In fact, they're not. You understand that God's proper name is not God. Like, seriously, you get that, right? That's not disrespectful, that's reality. God is just a general term for any deity. We, we somehow, and I get why we've done it, because we believe that our God is the one true God, and so we're like, there's the God, and then there's God, little g. But the fact of the matter is, when we talk about the name of God, God's name is not God. God's name is not Lord. And Nehemiah here, he starts off by saying, Lord, God of heaven. Now, one of those names is general. One of those names is general. God of heaven would have been a general term, non-specific, common term in the Persian Empire. Understand that what we're reading here in writing would have been made available in writing then too. So Nehemiah using the God of heaven thing is using a generality for intentional purposes. He's talking about the, this God of heaven that you all talk about. 
That, that he's there. He's there. So there is the general term, but then he comes back around and he uses a specific term, and he actually uses the name of Yahweh, the proper name for the Hebrew God. He is specific. This is not some random God of heaven, and just, just in case any of you are confused about which God of heaven I called out to, I called out to the one true God of heaven, the Hebrew God of heaven, I called out to Yahweh, the God that simply exists, the God from whom all existence comes. Then he further defines it. Says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. This, this is actually not the best translation for this. And, and for you and I, the word, the word awesome has kind of lost some of its meaning, right? Like, we, Lego made sure of that. If you've not seen the Lego movie, you know, everything is awesome. Like, that, that's what I think of every time that, that I think of awesome. It's kind of like a, a word that just means that things are really good, things are really cool. That's not what it was originally meant to mean. And as, as we look at the word that's actually used here, it's better translated, the terrible God. That's what I'm talking about, right? Not the awesome God, and the terrible God. That means something to me. Like, th this, is, this is a God that, that is worth fearing. This is a God that, that is big. This is a God that is scary. We don't, we don't like that. We'd much rather have the awesome God. You know, awesome God. We, we struggle with that. God being terrible and God being scary and God being feared. The, the inference there is that this God is a God who causes humanity to stand in fear. This is a God who inspires awe through all he does. We like to think that God has that power. But when we refer to God, we prefer to think of the God of love. We, 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 we think of God as, as this teddy bear. You know, this loving teddy bear that's just soft and it's there so that we can go to it. And when we're feeling bad, we can cuddle it and it'll make us feel better. But you know what the problem with a teddy bear is? Is while it makes us feel better in the moment, it does nothing for us. No real value added. My kids have like 50 billion Build-A-Bear teddy bears. They're all in boxes and closets because they don't really do anything for us anymore. A terrible God, a God that is so powerful that it makes you a little bit nervous. That's the God I want. I want a God that is so massive that I can't understand him. That his power is so vast that I can't categorize and limit it. We sometimes tend to box God, and we use our walls to do it. God fits in here, and God is what we do here, and God is what we say here, and God is what we sing here, and God's like, no, 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 no. I am big. I am everywhere. Everything that, that, that's happening, I have a hand in that. I am powerful. I am to be feared. I move and do amazing things in this world. Our God is not some random unknown entity. Our God is the God who's been revealed to us through his continuous work in the world and even more so in our context and in our day because God has revealed himself in and through us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. We need to remember who God is and how big God is. We need to remember what God has done. Nehemiah points to the promises, the covenant that God has made with his people. He, he's pointing about, back specifically to the covenant that, that God has made with Abraham, which was reaffirmed with Moses that God was going to make a people in the world, that he would be their God and they would be his people. It was the promise of God's continued love and faithfulness 
to his people. And the truth about God is this. He always, always delivers on his promises. Nehemiah is looking back to the exodus from Egypt while believing that God will bring a second exodus from exile. We, We often make a mistake as the people of God as we look back to what God has done in the past and we lift that up. If God could only do what he did before, and part of our mistake, particularly in the church, is we look back and we see our successes of the past. We look back and see what God did in and through us back there, and we see that day when we had success, and we think, if we just did things like we did them then, God would deliver us and he would bring about success. Well, here's the thing, though. Is what we did what brought success back then, or was it the God who worked in that moment? And the fact is, we can never get back to that. There's never value in going back to Egypt. There's never value. All that leads to is slavery. God is always calling us into the new thing he is doing. He is always calling us to move forward into what is coming next, to the next move of his spirit. Are we ready to follow him? Are we ready to allow him to make himself known in and through us however he wants? Are we ready to take the limitations off, to to remove the boxes and the walls that that, that tend to to limit who God can be and how he can function in us? We need to remember what God has done, and as a result, we need to remember what God will do. Finally, we need to realize, as we recognize God's faithfulness, that the world has forgotten God. That's truth. That, that's not some obscure, like, you know, cliche, profound thing that I was trying to make up. That is true. You realize that there is research out there and that right now, the greatest group of religious, spiritual individuals in our country are nuns. Not N-U-N, Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. That when they are asked when, when, when they did this massive research project and they asked people to indicate what their religious belief and affiliation was, it came out that they didn't affiliate themselves with any spiritual group, that they saw themselves as spiritual. It's not a problem with spirituality. They, they believe that there's something out there. There is a spiritual reality, but they don't know what it is. As a matter of fact, the, one of the number one religious groups out there right now is agnostic. What that means is this, they believe that there is a God, they know that there is a God, they simply believe that we can't know who that God is. That there's a God, but I, I don't really know who they are or what they do. They're out there, but I don't know why, what that ma- means to me, I don't know why that matters. People have forgotten God. You understand that America, we we could argue back and forth. There's all kinds of research both ways as to whether or not America was truly foundationally a a Christian nation. I'm not here to argue the founding fathers' perspectives. It's not a worthwhile argument for me. If you want to argue that later, you can talk to someone who cares because I don't. The, The point is this, though, that America was founded by a bunch of people who were seeking religious freedom and came over here. We may not have been a Christian nation, but there have historically been a lot of Christians in our nation. And at least culturally, until recent days, there was a Christian understanding within our society. And what I mean by by that is this, that we could go out and talk to basically anybody, and we could use Christian words and biblical jargon, and people would have a foundational understanding of what we were saying. 
That is not true anymore. A lot of the things that we say might as well be Greek to people that we're talking to. You realize that people now define our culture as being a post-Christian society. We used to be really concerned. You know, we had the modern. It was the modern era. And then we had the post-modern era, era, and the Christianity was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. What are we going to do with this? And we became all about what we were against. And while we weren't looking, the, the whole post-modern, we're afraid that it's going to be pluralistic and everybody's God's going to be the same, became irrelevant because people were like, we just don't know that there's, we don't know who, whose God is what, so we're just going to let it go. And so as people look at that and they want to define us, they call us a post-Christian society. Brings me to our next point as we understand that the world has forgotten God. We need to recognize our failure. The church has failed. Now, that's not, you know, I understand that this, the, I'm going to build my church and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm not saying that we've lost. There's great things happening in the church worldwide. But let's own for a second. Can we just be, can we be honest? Can we be adults with one another right now that the church in America has failed? We have all the buildings that we could want. We have all the resources we could want. We have our, we have our own businesses. We have our own industries, Christian industries that, that give us Christian music, great Christian music. I don't mean to demean that. We have our, our own books, Christian books. We have all these things that are own, but the world still looks at us outside of these walls and we're post-Christian. We have failed. Much is the same as the people of God had failed in Nehemiah's day. The destruction of the temple wasn't the result of God's failure to his people, but the failure of God's people to God. Their failure to understand and follow his commands. Their failure to draw close to him and live in relationship with him. Their failure to utilize their position in the world to make God known. Nehemiah recognizes that. If we look at verse 6 and 7, he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I find it interesting that here a hundred years later, after the, the temple has been destroyed, Nehemiah still looks at that reality and says, it is my fault. It is my parents' fault. It is my family's fault. Sure, it is us corporately, but it is also me individual. If we are going to truly recognize the failure of the church and we are going to move forward to make a difference, it has to start individually. We have to own, we can't look out there and say, yeah, but they, they are the ones that did it. It's their fault. If they didn't, if the previous generation wouldn't have done this, if, the, if they wouldn't have, well, that, that, all that's going to do is perpetuate the problem and continue to make us look like fools. If all we're doing is fighting in and amongst other Christian groups about whose fault it is, what, we're going to be too busy fighting amongst ourselves to do anything of value. It's got to start with us. Okay, what have I failed out and where can I repent? How can I turn my attention back to the Lord? Both corporately and personally, confession is necessary. We've got to own that we have failed. And that we need God to move on our behalf and change who we are and how we function that he might bring about the success we've pro he's promised us. We must go back to his word and pursue his holiness in our lives that he might shine his presence through us. And there is always room for repentance. 
constantly there's a need for us to remember the commandments of God and return our attention to following them. I like, uh, there's been a blog here recently, but one of my guilty pleasures is HGTV. I I enjoy HGTV. I'll confess that. I can sit and watch it for hours. And I I love watching. I don't understand it. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, how do people walk into a house that is like a barren, desolate wasteland of filth, and they start looking at these houses, and they're like, if we just do this and this, we clean a wall and add a window, it'll be perfect. And they clean a wall and add a window, and it's perfect. And you're like, how in the world did that happen? A shiplap, that's exactly right. <laughs> the glory of shiplap. But you see this all the time. And, and they renovate. Sometimes it's little projects, sometimes it's big projects, but they get to the end. And, and, and then there's what I call the lie of HGTV. Because they get done with the house and they reveal it to the people. It's like, it's amazing. This house is perfect for you. It's done. That is a lie. That is a lie. I haven't done much work on my house, but I can tell you every time the list gets done, another list gets created. Just as soon as I think I fixed one thing, something else breaks. Right? Like, that's how it happens. The, the renovation. Listen, if, you have, if you've bought a new house or you're living in a house and, and you feel like you're done, you're not done. The, the renovation never ends. It is a never-ending process that will always have things breaking and re-breaking and always have things that need upgraded and updated and fixed. That's why renting is so much better. Our renovations and repairs are never permanent. There's always a need for more. And the same is true with our lives. We may have fixed one thing, but there's always another way. There's always another step towards God's perfection we can make. The sanctification is never a a process that doesn't end. It's a continuous act of, of molding our lives, allowing our lives to be molded to the image of Jesus. A continual, continual pulling ourselves in and being pulled towards God through the power of his Holy Spirit that he might renew us and make us who and what he wants us to be, that he might make a difference in and through us. There's always more to do. As individuals and as a church, there is always room for improvement. I just finished reading a book, or I'm almost finished reading a book called The Goldmine Effect. And it's about high-performing athletes in the world and and how they they, they come and and become this great thing and how certain regions produce these high-quality athletes uh, and a, a bunch of them. Like most, most of the, the long-distance runners that we see in the Olympics winning from Kenya all come from like a 10-mile radius. It's something insane. And all of, these, all of the, the sprinters we see from, from Jamaica come from the same sprint club. We see this over and over again. And one of the things that these coaches continue to say is that the worst thing that ever happens to world-class athletes or people trying to bring about world-class athletes is the feeling that they've arrived, that they've achieved it, that they're there. Because as soon as you think you've arrived, you set up camp and you stop moving forward. That's uh, that's my fear for First Baptist Church. It's my fear for, for this service. That, that we would look around at what God's doing and what God's done, and we, we'd look at the change of the reputation of First Baptist Church, and we'd say, we've arrived, we did it. 
we haven't. God wants to do so much. Remember, the, the terrible God, there are awesome things that God wants us to do. There's always more. And I want to see God do more. I want to see God do bigger in me, through me, and through us. I always want to see growing the church is not just about building the building and filling the building, but seeing how many buildings God can fill. Not, and I don't mean that literally. I mean figuratively. How many people can we bring into the kingdom of God? How can we partner with the world so that we make a difference in the world? For his glory, there's always room for improvement. So we have a recognition of our failure. And finally, we request God's favor. I find it interesting that that's where Nehemiah ends. You and I, when we pray, we want to pray for God's favor. We want to pray for God's blessing. Notice that Nehemiah goes through a whole series of things that we see as being consistent throughout the scriptures of recognizing who God is, recognizing what God has done, recognizing how we're not where God would want us to be, and then turning and saying, God, move me there. Move me to where you bless me. Move me to where you'll do what it is that you've said you would do. It's the ending point, not the starting point. We often make the mistake of asking for God's favor without taking the steps to recognizing our part and the realities we're facing. He asks God to hear and respond to his reverence and desire to honor God himself. Nehemiah's ultimate goal is not simply to build a wall. It's not simply to protect his people, but to bring reverence and honor to the name of God, to make God known in the world. God's continued favor is dependent upon his faithfulness, our faithfulness. Now, let me be clear, we don't earn God's favor. But so often we want to be laissez-faire, hands off, you know, God just bless me, God do, God make me what you want to be, God be faithful to me, and God will be faithful to us, but so often we are unfaithful to God. So the issues in our lives often don't stem from the fact that God forgot me or walked away from me, but that I walked away from God, and our need is to turn and go back to him. If we want God to be faithful to us, if we want to experience the favor of God, the way that we're going to do that is if we are walking in right relationship with him. The greatest exile that we experience in this world is not a removal from an earthly place, but a removal from God's presence. God's favor is best seen through him taking up residence with us. And that's what we're trying to build here at First Baptist Church. That's what we want to see come about in the community of Seymour, Indiana. We want to build a place, places, that demonstrate the grace and love of God to a world that so desperately needs him. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We aren't to be a fortress situated in some dark corner to keep the world out, to hide from what the world is saying. We are to be a city with lights shining out into the world, calling the world to us, and going to the world ourselves that we might bring the hope of Jesus to the hopeless, that we might bring life to those that are stuck in death, that we might bring freedom to those that are stuck in captivity, that we might bring hope to the hopeless. It's time to rebuild the walls. Not to hold us in and keep the world out, but to make known the presence of God and the world that he's created, to make known his power to those who have forgotten, to, forgotten him, and to make available his love and grace 
through our presence in and amongst the world. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for your great love with which you loved us. God, I pray that you would work and move in our hearts and minds, that you would draw us close to yourself, God. Lord, we thank you that that you have called us, that you have redeemed us, and that it is your desire to come and dwell with us. God, we offer you ourselves today. I ask that you'd work and move according to your plan and purpose. In Jesus' name.